0: You can open your Bible back up to Ephesians chapter six, please. I am very thankful to the the pastoral staff for giving me the privilege of of preaching this morning. Um, I. I, I can't think of a place that is, is more meaningful to me um, to be able to to be able to preach uh, in um, 1986 to 2006. Um, this this was my home church, and um, a, as I've gotten older, I've realized that every just about everything I know about Scripture, about living the Christian life, about what church should be like it, is rooted in this place. Uh, and actually, in many of you, because a lot of you are still here, um, I just just two things I appreciate, and then um, and then we'll we'll get into the, the message here. Um, I appreciate just the the consistent emphasis on the simple word of God. Um, I hope you don't take offense to this, but I I don't think Maranatha has ever been fancy. Um, at least, at least not when I was here, but just the continual preaching and teaching of the Word of God and a humble desire to submit to it. And, and one of the specific things that I even recognized as a teenager because it stood out so much was just the, the adults in the church recognized that Christian growth was for them too. It's not just a teenage thing. And so even as a teenager, I would watch families grow and mature in Christ, and the church grow and mature in Christ as a result of that. It wasn't like, well, we're Christian adults now, so everything's good, and all that gross stuff is for the little kids. Um, you, you realize that it was for all of you, and, and I, uh, I appreciate that, and though in the last 20 years or so, my interaction has been limited, I, I think I've seen that, and little bits can continue, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, as, as fun as it would be to just stand up here and tell you know stories of Maranatha 20 years ago, you didn't come here for that. And I know Pastor Joey didn't ask me to come here to share stories. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text of Scripture. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work through it to help us understand it, recognize how it ought to impact our thinking, in our actions, and that we would live it out as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Already today, even though it's, I don't know, I don't know what time it is, 10, 10 something, something like that, uh, you and I have put on many things already. Some of you, probably the first thing you put on today was a pot of coffee. Uh, all of you put on your clothes for church. Some of you might have put on cologne, maybe a necklace, maybe a jacket, um, some of you got out of the car, put on your happy church face. There's there's lots of things that we put on. The Question for you today is: Did you put on the armor of God this morning? So if you're like me, if if I were in your spot, I would be sitting there thinking, uh, Well, um, okay. I know Pastor Mike read the, the the passage, armor of God. Did I? I yeah. I mean, kind. I. I maybe? And that's probably the best answer we could come up with. However, if we think about it, is there any command in Scripture to put on a pot of coffee in the morning? Is there any command in Scripture to put on your church clothes? Any command to put on the necklace, the jacket, the happy church face? We, we, we take care to put all of those things on and yet only one of those things is actually commanded in Scripture. And that's to put on the armor of God. So in Ephesians, that command to put on the armor of God received a primary place at the conclusion to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You see, Paul wanted the Ephesians to know that through Christ, God had provided the strength they needed to withstand the enemy. Here we are, 2,000-ish years later, and guess what God wants us to know? That through Christ... God has provided the strength we need to withstand the enemy. Let's read the passage again. Finally, uh, this is verse 10, "...finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul wants us to know, and God wants us to know, that through Christ, God has provided the strength, that we need to withstand the enemy. And there's four things we're going to notice in this passage. Here's the first one, right at the beginning, verses 11 and 12. Here's the first thing we realize. We have a supernatural enemy." Verse 11, or verse, verse 12. "For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Our primary enemy is not the people around us, but the power behind both their sin and, if we're honest, our sin as well. Your harsh boss is not the enemy. The jerk in your class at school is not the enemy. Your annoying sibling, your inconsiderate spouse, your overbearing relative, your grumpy neighbor, the politicians on the other side of the aisle, elements of an anti-Christian culture, even the internet is not the primary enemy. The enemy, Satan, works through the sins of others and through our own sin. But we have a supernatural enemy. And that implies something. I don't have political enemies. Do you know why? Because I don't matter to any politicians. I don't really have athletic enemies. Because for some reason the Davison AYSO Youth Soccer Under 12 Team 1 doesn't matter to anybody outside of Genesee County, and it barely matters to them. But if we have a supernatural enemy, what does that imply about us? That implies that we are part of something much bigger and more consequential than we may think. We only have a supernatural enemy if there's something big going on that he doesn't like. Followers of Christ, if that is you this morning, you are part of God's plan. You are part of something much bigger and more consequential than your math homework, your lawn mowing, or your laundry folding would indicate. We have a supernatural enemy. Now, in spite of Pastor Joey's comments about my uh, lack of um, flag football skill, I still fancy myself somewhat athletic, based on virtually no evidence, but that's how I think about myself. So, suppose the Lions called me up for their next game and said, hey, um, we, we, we need somebody to play, play running back. Things happen to, to both our, our main running backs, and, and we need you to play. Okay, now don't answer this out loud. How long would I last? Uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure I would last through a full play, depending on what that play was. I would find out pretty quickly that I do not have the strength to withstand the enemy on the other side. So so church, if if we have a supernatural enemy, guess what else this passage tells us? We need God's enablement to withstand that enemy because you and I are not sufficient on our own. Look back at verse 10, please. Notice how Paul emphasizes this. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God so so he makes it really clear that we need God's strength and God's armor nothing about this passage is sourced in us where does the strength come from according to this passage it's in the Lord whose armor is it it's God's armor now this is not a new idea in the book of ephesians I don't want you to to turn there, but back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, here's what it says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? By the time we get to chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians, Paul had already made it clear that God is powerful. He is powerful enough to resurrect the dead, and he wants to exercise that power on my behalf and on your behalf. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul prays this. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. By the time we get to chapter 6, Paul has made it clear that we are, insuff- we are insufficient. Our strength must be sourced in God. And, and, and what significance is that in helping us against a supernatural enemy? Because in chapter 1, verse 21, he says this about Jesus. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Paul points out that this Jesus, who had been resurrected from the dead, has power over that supernatural enemy. So we have a supernatural enemy. We need God's enablement that's not news to you. You knew that. So the question we should then be asking is, so how do we get it? How how does God provide that? And that's what we find in verses 14 through 17 with the listing of the armor of God. And here's how I'm going to summarize all of the different aspects of the, of the armor of God. And, and it, it may sound a little bit surprising, but I think you'll pick up on it as we go through the passage. So we have a supernatural enemy. We need God's enablement. And we must embrace what God has provided through Christ. We must embrace what God has provided through Christ. I want you to keep three things in mind. As we go through the different pieces of the armor here, first thing to keep in mind, this is a communal command, not just an individual one. I I don't know how I missed this all these years, but I always had in my mind a picture of, okay, put on the armor of God. Here's me putting on the armor of God. There's something significant missing from that picture though. People only put on armor if they're part of an army. This is not just a passage about you. This is a passage about you and us. This is a, this is a communal context. The imagery only makes sense in that light. And it also fits with the emphasis of Ephesians. Chapter 1, Paul points out Christ is the head of his body, the church. Chapter 2, the church is the dwelling place of God. Chapter 3, the church displays God's wisdom. Also chapter 3, God is glorified through the church. Chapter 4, God gave gifts to the church and grows the church. Chapter 5, the marriage relationship pictures Christ's love for the church. So when we get to chapter 6, it would only be natural to expect it to have something to do with The church, this is not just an individual command. This is a communal command. And I completely should have realized this because I believe you guys sing a hymn, as we do at our church, that literally says, O church, arise and put your armor on. Second thing to keep in mind before we look at the armor. These are present realities that we must embrace. And and here's why I think we need to clarify that. When Paul is telling them, put on the helmet of salvation, is he saying, you're not saved yet, but you need to get saved? Is that, is that what he's saying? No. When he, says, when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, is he saying, you don't have righteousness on your own. You're not saved. Now you need to put it on, so you need to get saved now. Is that, is that what Paul is telling the Ephesians? No. He is saying, these are present realities. You need to embrace them. Think of, it, think of it this way. Pick any meaningful relationship that you have. Maybe it's, it's with a spouse, maybe it's parent-child, maybe it's with a best friend. Within those real relationships, sometimes we can live separate lives as if those aren't existent. Can't we? Isn't it possible for a husband or wife, parent-child two best friends, to go through seasons of their life where they really live as if that relationship has no impact on them whatsoever. Does the relationship still exist? Yes. What do they need to do with that? Embrace it. Lean into the reality of that relationship. So so these are present realities that we must embrace. Third thing to keep in mind. These are primarily about God's provision, not our action. Now, as you embrace God's provision of righteousness, what will be the natural consequence of that? You will live out righteousness. As you embrace God's truth, what would be the natural consequence of that? You would speak truth. But in this passage in Ephesians, remember this—the Lord. Excuse me. This is the Lord's strength. It is God's armor. This is primarily about God's provision, not our action. As we look through each of the piece of, pieces of armor briefly, keep these three things in mind. This is a communal command, not just an individual one. These are primarily about God's provision, not our action. And these are present realities that we have to embrace. Okay, keep those three things in mind as we look at these. Okay, verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Why? Do I need a belt of truth? Well, if you were to turn to Romans chapter 1, what would you find is our natural tendency to... Res- what is our natural response to the truth on our own? According to Romans chapter 1, my natural tendency and your natural tendency when you hear truth is to suppress it and believe the father of lies, as John eight forty four describes Satan. So, instead of giving in to my natural tendency to hear the truth and suppress it, I must embrace reality as God declares it, not how I interpret it. I, I need the belt of truth because I can sometimes think I'm right about the world and what's going on in rejection of what God's truth says. And I must embrace reality as God declares it, not how I interpret it. So the belt of truth. Second thing we see, verse 14, having, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, you and I have to cling to the imputed righteousness that God has given me through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I have to embrace Jesus' righteousness not my own manufactured righteousness. Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 3. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Breastplate of righteousness. I've got to cling to the imputed righteousness that God has provided through Christ, not try to manufacture my own. Third thing. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace makes us ready to withstand Satan's attacks. Okay, so I want you to, I want you to think for a second. What relationships has the gospel brought peace to? What relationships has the gospel brought peace to? The first one and most significant one we know from Romans 5. The gospel has made it possible for us to be at peace with God. To be at peace with God. Though I was formerly an enemy under condemnation, through the gospel, I can be at peace with God. But there's, a, there's another set of relationships that are emphasized in the book of Ephesians. And, and I, I, would not have, I would not have assumed that in this context, except for the rest of the book of Ephesians. Because if you know much about the book of Ephesians, Paul emphasizes that, that the gospel has not just brought peace between believers and God, but between diverse believers and each other. Because you had this conflict with Jews and Gentiles in the Ephesian church, and Paul makes it really clear repeatedly to them as a point of emphasis that you, you guys aren't at odds anymore. You are at peace as well because you are both at peace with God. So, peace between believers is a result of the gospel and an emphasis of Ephesians, and it also fits the context. Remember, it's not just me in my armor, it's an army. It's you. Why, it is, imp- why is it important that the gospel has brought peace between believers in the context of an army? phrase, divide and conquer, right? <laughs> but, but if there's peace brought about by the gospel, that makes the army more effective in carrying out its purpose. So the gospel of peace brings peace between you and God and between you and other believers. Now, look back at, uh, uh, let's see, verse, uh, let's go to verse 16. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, which you can, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I must believe what God has de- declared to be true rather than the lies of Satan. So that, turn back a little bit to Ephesians 4. Keep your finger here in chapter 6. Go back to Ephesians 4. When I do that, when I take up the shield of faith to distinguish, to extinguish... The, uh, the the darts of the evil one, that keeps us from the warning Paul gives in chapter 4 and verse 14. Um, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul had already warned them, hey, you, you got to watch out for this cause, because you can be You can be tossed to and fro and carried about. And so one of the ways we avoid that is by taking the shield of faith. Then we get to verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. I must embrace the reality that I have been delivered from future judgment. But there's more to salvation than that. It is not simply a deliverance from future judgment, although it is that. It is a deliverance from the present power of sin. Romans 6 is clear on that. We need to embrace the reality that we have been delivered from future judgment as well as from the present power of sin. And you may say, but it doesn't feel like that. To which we would reply, I know. That's why we need the belt of truth and the shield of faith. We have to embrace the reality that we've been delivered from future judgment and present sin. The rest of verse 17. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I must embrace the word of God as a tool for countering Satan's attacks. Can you think, this is a rhetorical question. Can you think of any examples in scripture of somebody who effectively used the word of God to counter the direct attacks of Satan? In Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, he showed us how to properly use the word of God when confronted by this supernatural enemy. And he is our example of how to use the word in that way. Now, as we've gone through these quickly the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, the readiness given by the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. There's something that connects all of these. Every single one of these pieces of armor is rooted in Jesus. Belt of truth. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I... And the way, the truth. Breastplate of righteousness, first John two, one. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Earlier in Ephesians chapter two, verse fourteen says, For he himself is our peace. Ephesians chapter one, your faith in the Lord Jesus, he is the object of our faith. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in no one else. Salvation is found in Jesus. In John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the righteous. He is our peace. Jesus is the object of our faith. Salvation is found in Jesus. He is the Word. So, when, when Paul, when God commands us to put on the armor of God, he is saying, embrace everything God has provided in Christ. We have a supernatural enemy. We are not sufficient to withstand that enemy. Therefore, we must embrace what God has provided through Christ. But the passage doesn't stop there because we read through verse 20. So look back at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer in supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we not only must embrace what God has provided through Christ, we must be continually dependent on God through the Spirit. Okay, look back at verse 18. When should we pray? At all times. Who should we pray for? All the saints. So, so Paul points out that the need for prayer is continual and it's universal. Uh, and I read an article recently called The Temptation We Most Often Overlook. And, and he addresses it this way. It says the absence of prayer is what exposes and unmasks our self-sufficient spirit. The sidelining of God as demonstrated by the absence of fervent prayer, surely this is the great temptation of our times. If we are going to have strength to withstand the enemy, we have to put on the armor of God. We have to embrace all that God has provided through Christ. And we do this through continual prayer for all the saints. Notice here also, though, it it kind of qualifies the type of prayer. Uh, Praying at all times is... In the spirit. This is not just ritual repetition like a rosary or like many athletes do before they step onto the field or step off of the field. And Paul goes on to give us an example of what he means by this. Look at verses, the last two verses here 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul knows he's going to face opposition as he goes on his gospel ministry. He's going to face opposition and he is going to be tempted to give in. And so what does he do? He asks them to pray for boldness to continue so that he could withstand the enemy. And notice here, again, we see the communal aspect. Paul is praying, but he's asking them to do what? He's asking them to pray for for him. We see the communal aspect of this passage being worked out. We have a supernatural enemy. We're insufficient. We must embrace what God has provided through Christ, and we have to be continually dependent on God through the Spirit. So what does this actually look like in practice? Paul gives us a very clear example. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12, please. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12, I want you to notice in what's likely a a somewhat familiar passage, but notice a connection between 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll be starting in verse 7, and the armor of God that we just discussed in Ephesians chapter 6. So 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll go down to uh, verse 7. Second right, 2, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Okay, we're going to read down through verse 10, and I want you to be looking for parallels in this passage and what we've looked at in Ephesians 6. Verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, When you read this passage in light of what we see in Ephesians 6, what do we notice? Well, Paul is facing an attack, and he roots it in what? He roots it in Satan. So so you have that, that supernatural enemy. Paul recognized his insufficiency. He can't handle this. So what does he do? He prays to God. Did God give him what he asked for? Did God give him what he asked for here? said remove this thorn in the flesh. God didn't, but what did God give him? Well, we see that in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What did God give to Paul? He gave him his grace and he gave him his power. And so what did Paul have to do? He had to embrace what God had provided. For him, his promise of strength, his promise of grace. And then what was the end result when Paul did that? What was a weakness became a strength. So here is Paul living out exactly what he's saying in Ephesians 16. He, he is facing onslaught from a supernatural enemy. He is insufficient to handle this on his own. So he prays to God. God didn't answer his specific request, but God provided the grace and strength that he needed. He embraced that, and that weakness became a strength. That's how Paul lived it out. Let's consider a couple scenarios that, that may be helpful for you and I. These are certainly not descriptive of everything any of you might face, and we're certainly not going to say everything we can about them, but maybe we'll spur our thinking. You have a coworker or boss that has unreasonable expectations and is often volatile and hostile. It sometimes seems like it's specifically directed at you more than others, possibly even because of your faith in Christ. So, belt of truth. What truths might you need to remember in this scenario? Well, just a couple. One thing that I think you need to remember in this scenario is, this is not surprising. Should you be surprised that people without Christ are angry and volatile? No. This is what Jesus said sin does. Now, there are many other truths that you may need to be thinking of. How how does Jesus' imputed righteousness help you? Wait a minute. Okay, I'll be honest. Prior to studying this passage, I never would have asked that question before. How does the imputed righteousness of Christ help me deal with frustrations with somebody else? I, I think when we consider the imputed righteousness of Christ, it might remind us that I'm in the same boat before God as this person is. I needed Jesus' righteousness, and so does he. When I realize that I'm in the same boat as him, that kind of helps me know how to respond differently. How does the peace brought by the gospel help? Well, I may not be at peace with this person right now, but I am at peace with the one person who does matter, with God. What do you need to believe? Well, you need to believe, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there, there's a way to escape. And Romans 8, that all things work together for good. How does the helmet of salvation help? I You don't have to give in to the discouragement or the sinful reactions you and I are prone to. We don't have to. The helmet of salvation reminds us of that. What scriptural truth needs to be in your head regularly? Maybe a passage about James 1. And you might say, "Ah, but that's so hard to believe. Yes, the shield of faith. And we need to bring all of it to God regularly in prayer in relationship to each other because remember this is not me it's us if i were a soldier in an army would i care how you were armed yeah so so if you're sitting in here struggling to get your armor on what should the rest of you do help them if you're struggling to get your armor on, what should you do? Ask for help. One more scenario. You feel the pull to value things differently than God does. You feel it in your own heart. You feel it from those around you. Every piece of media you expose yourself to, whether that's valuing athletic achievements, some standard of physical appearance and beauty, some acceptance within a certain peer group, material status symbols. Now, now some of those aren't wrong, but you know your heart is giving too much weight to them. Your misplaced priorities are showing up in your relationships, intention in your relationships, and the ease with which we're willing to sin or set God to the side to get those things. If you feel that pull in your heart, how would the armor of God help you? Well, what truth do you need to remember? Beauty is vain. Fear of man brings us a snare. They don't satisfy. How does imputed righteousness of Christ help you? You have the most precious thing already. You're loved by God in spite of your sinful priorities. How does the peace brought by the gospel help you don't need other things. You, you have God. These other things are breaking relationships, but the gospel wants to restore them. What do you need to believe? Your sinful priorities are sin. They're not just a phase. They're not just what everyone does. But right priorities will lead to true satisfaction. How does this helmet of salvation help? God's delivered us from misplaced priorities. We have the ability to resist. What scriptural truth needs to be in our head? The priority of the glory of God 1 Corinthians 10:31 the dangers of the fear of man Proverbs 29 the satisfaction God provides in Psalm 63 We need to bring it all to God regularly and seek help and encouragement from other believers There are numerous scenarios that all of us face at different points in our lives But we all have a supernatural enemy We are insufficient And so we must embrace what God has provided through Christ and we must be continually dependent on God through the Spirit. If you are not a follower of Jesus right now, you also have a supernatural enemy. It's a different one. Like Pastor Joy mentioned in his welcome at the beginning, if you are not a follower of Jesus, your supernatural enemy is God and you are not sufficient to face him. But guess what he would tell you? Embrace what God has provided through Christ. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wants you to turn from your self-sufficiency, your own attempts to make life work, and turn to him. He calls that repentance and faith. If you are a believer, you may be thinking... Uh, I'm not too sure about this. I I don't know that this whole spiritual armor thing, embrace what God has provided through Christ, I'm not so sure that'll work. Paul thought you might say that. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. He had already removed that excuse from the Ephesians people, from from the Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul already reminded the Ephesians that, look, this might seem impossible, but guess what? God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Church, we we have a supernatural enemy. We're not sufficient. We have to embrace what God has provided through Christ, and we have to be continually dependent on God through the Spirit. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Father, in some ways, your word is easy to speak and it is easy to hear, but we don't want it to stay in our lips and in our ears. We want it to change our hearts and to affect our actions. Lord, I I ask that you would help me, help each of us here today to embrace what you have provided through Christ and to help each other do that as well. In Jesus' name.